throughout my life I have been impressed and sort of in awe of people who are good at, at making things. And some of you in here I know that's you're really good at that. And if you've heard me talk over the last year and a half or so, you realize I'm not. And I've told you before, and I will tell you again, that I really, when I was growing up, I knew two things. I knew baseball and I knew the church. That was about it. Now, those two things have served me well, and I'm appreciative to know at least that much. But I, I am not a handyman. I'm not a person who can put things together. But some of you have lots of tools that you can use to make things. And one of the foundational tools, of course, in construction is the hammer. Now, I, I, I warn you, I don't have any clue what I'm doing with this, so be careful in the front row. But I could throw it maybe reach the back row, so don't fall asleep. So anyway, and I'll have it with me the whole time, all right? But those who know what they're doing can use something like this to make things that are beautiful to build the frame of a home that, that will then encompass all sorts of other pieces and elements and, and build a place for somebody to live. Or to put something together that just is unbelievable. And they start with raw materials and tools. Now, in the hands of someone, as I said, who knows what they're doing, this hammer is an extremely useful and beneficial tool. But you put it in the hands of somebody like me who has no clue what they're doing, and odds are I'm just going to destroy stuff. Because when I think of a hammer, I think, of man, that'd be good for knocking something down, wouldn't it? Boy, especially a big old sledgehammer. You can do some damage with one of those things. And it's interesting that in the hands of someone unskilled, someone without practice, someone without knowledge of what its use is to be, that a simple tool that has no inherent value can be either destructive or in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, has learned the right principles, has practiced, has listened to people who know what they're talking about, it can be a very useful and productive tool. The same is true, I think, when it comes to our money. Because much like that hammer, money, of course, can bring things that are beautiful into your life. As some of you have experienced, it can destroy your life. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about a series on money. This is the third in a four-part series that we'll conclude next week. And so far, some of the overarching principles that we've looked at have been this. The first message was why God's money is, or why your money, rather, is God's business. Why your money is God's business. And the reason being is that He is the Creator. It all comes from Him. So anything we have is a gift from God. And then secondly, the reason is that He is holy, which means that He is the only one who gets to set the rules. And then He is the King, which as a result means that we are accountable as His subjects to how we follow His rules. So our money is God's business because of all of those things. Then last week we looked at the fact that your relationship with money is a window to your heart, revealing who or what is really in charge. I told you last week that I stood sort of in solidarity with you if you felt convicted by that particular statement that, wow, when I look at my life, I realize I'm not sure that God is totally in charge, but maybe I'm controlled more by my stuff and what I have. And my relationship with my money reveals that 
it's really in charge of my life. And so we're gaining the, the knowledge and the wisdom through this series to avoid a sure way to destruction and to disappointment. And we're turning to the Bible in each series for our advice because we believe here at Elm Grove that the Bible is the source of all wisdom, the source of all life and truth, and we depend on it for that. And as a corollary to that, we realize that the wisdom and advice that comes from the world quite often has left us in the dust and not exactly the lives that we wanted. Our ways have not worked. On average, I found this particular study interesting. On average, an American shops six hours a week. On average. Some of you are way above average, right? I happen to be one who's way below average. I despise shopping. The Lord has been so good to me, by the way, because I married a lady who loves baseball and hates the shop. I just, I, I, if God ever give, never gives me another thing, that's, that's enough. Anyway, but the, the average American shops six hours a week, but spends only 40 minutes playing with his or her children. Shops six hours a week, 40 minutes playing with the children. By the age of 20, the average television viewer has seen one million commercials. One million. How many of you are 20 and above? Raise your hand if you're 20 and above. Absolutely, that's most of us in here. Double it. If you're 40 and above, put your hand down. I won't make you. I'm going to say that. Probably two million commercials. What did we say last week? You will, in your lifetime, spend an average of two years watching commercials. Is that amazing? How about that? Recently, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. Well, that's a telling statistic on our society. In 90% of divorce cases, arguments about money play a prominent role. If you've been through a divorce, I probably don't have to tell you that. If you have arguments in your home, odds are many of them center around money. And so our common sense, our just gut feelings on how we should respond or react toward the money that comes our way, how we should operate with it, hasn't worked. And neither is what you'll find on television. In the last 10 years, there have been several reality shows that have come out, and for some reason they become very popular. A couple of those have been seen on different channels. One was called I Love Money. It was on VH1. Some of you have maybe seen it. Let me read you the description of this particular show. It says, VH1 and 51 Minds Entertainment present the new television series, I Love Money. It's a show that gives 15 wildly popular all-star cast members from the Of Love series the chance to battle it out for what they really wanted all along, fame, and even more importantly, money. It will be a cutthroat competition as cast members sharpen their backstabbing skills in the fight for their fortune. That's what they tell you. Now, the stuff they don't tell you is in what you'll later see in the series, which I'm sure is even worse than all of that. I love money, that show. And then maybe you say, well, I don't even know where VH1 is on my directory. Well, many of you probably watch NBC from time to time. There was a show not long ago called For Love or Money, an NBC version of ABC's The Bachelor with 15 ladies vying for his affections, this, this guy, and the secret they'll be forced to keep. This is The Bachelor with a twist. The girl that he picks gets a check for $1 million. The bachelor knows nothing about the money, 
So there will be plenty of deception and war between the ladies. You may say, well, good grief. Let me tell you, what you see on television, what you do simply by the common sense of America isn't working. It will not lead you to where God wants you to be. And so we're going to turn this morning to the Scripture because we believe it is the source of the wisdom that we need to live our lives. I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. If you're not familiar with the Bible, really I don't want that to stop you from looking this particular Scripture up. If you brought a Bible with you, 1 Timothy is in the New Testament, a little over halfway through the New Testament. If you need to, please go to the table of contents. You'll see the Bible is divided into the Old and to the New Testament. You'll see the book of First Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 6. And that's where we'll camp out this morning. Now let me give you a little bit of the background information about the book of First Timothy. If you combine First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the book called Titus, you get what is known historically as the group of pastoral epistles. Epistles are letters. Pastoral means they were written to help folks know how to pastor and lead and really how the church should be set up to a certain extent on the leadership side. And so Paul, the apostle who writes these epistles, writes to a guy named Timothy who's sort of his understudy. And Paul probably in his early 60s, Timothy say somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. So he's receiving advice from his mentor. Timothy, of course, is being sort of pushed out by Paul to go and to be a pastor and to lead and to help other people. And so the advice that's given in 1 Timothy is primarily to Timothy himself, and then as it trickles down, goes to the church, and then, of course, to us in our day. And so it is not a book that is just for random sorts of people. It is, in fact, first directed to pastors. And so just like last week, I told you if you feel sometimes convicted by what the Word of God says, then understand that particularly in this particular book, it's written first to be applied to the person in my position. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm any better than you. That just means God's going to smack me around a little bit more. So how about that? That's fun. Oh, I would love to be the pastor. No, you wouldn't. So, so, love you, but you wouldn't want to do it. Anyway. But, but the point is this, it comes first as a call to pastors. I myself, this week, have been face-to-face with these verses and the conviction that God has brought. And as a result, then it trickles down to the, to the people that the pastor will impart that particular bit of wisdom to. And it's no respecter of persons, which means that it's not just for older people. It's not just for younger people. It's not just for middle-aged people. It's not just for folks who are right in the middle of their work lives. It's not for rich people. It's not for poor people. It's not for middle-income people or high middle class or low middle class. It is for every single one of us today. So do not miss the truth. Whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you are in between, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are scraping by, just hoping that next week produces the same check it produced this week. Understand, this is a word from God for all of us. And so let's look at it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want us to focus first on verse 10. And a verse that's probably familiar to many of you. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pains. 
probably in your past sometime, you've heard that verse, or a reference to it anyway. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Let me tell you, the sure way, the sure path to destruction and disappointment begins with something this verse highlights that is very simple and self-explanatory once you read it, and it is this, loving money. I hope to present to you today not something that is extremely profound, but something that is very simple and comes directly from God's Word. And it's based upon that, that the path to destruction and disappointment begins with loving money. This morning I want to give you some practical stuff, some signs of money love. How can you recognize it? Some of the causes, what in the world leads to that sort of view of it? And then the results of it, what, if you stay on that path, where are you going? And then how can you turn from it? How can you walk away from the love of money? Let me give you some of the signs of money love. One of those is pride. Again, nothing extremely profound. You probably know people that are very proud about what they have. Now, pride is that high or overbearing opinion of your own worth and importance. None of us would admit to pride, but we all struggle with it. Every single one of us in here. You say, well, no, I, I realize I'm not any good. That's insecurity, which at some point will manifest itself in pride. Pride often is masked as insecurity. It's a desire for attention. Or it's maybe smugness or overconfidence. Maybe you're a know-it-all. Everybody else just needs to get with the program. Maybe you're finding your worth in what you have and comparing that worth then based upon what others don't have. Maybe you're taking credit for all the successes and blessings in your life. Pride is a definite sign of money love. Another one is greed. Greed. These all, by the way, these four I'll give you pretty well go hand in hand. Typically, if you're dealing with one, you're probably dealing with all four. And so they're not separated necessarily in any way. Greed means, of course, you're never satisfied. You always want more. They say, well, no, that's not me, but I would challenge you particularly those of you that are struggling with the tendencies toward workaholism, why? Why is it that you never take a day off? Why is it that you're always on the clock, so to speak? Why? Because probably you think that if I just work harder, I'll get more. And the more is what drives you, not necessarily the satisfaction in your work. Maybe you're a person who never stops to celebrate or to count the blessings in your life. Maybe you are always driven for more. Maybe you are that achiever, that perfectionist. Let me tell you, greed leads to idolatry, which means you worship something or someone besides God who says in the very first of the Ten Commandments, do not have any other gods before me. Greed will challenge you and it will cause you to worship something besides God. The next one is jealousy. If pride and greed are involved, there's probably an amount of jealousy, and that is wanting what others have. That is being fiercely protective of your rights and your property. Maybe you're afraid or suspicious or resentful or discontented, maybe longing is aroused by that desire for someone else's fortune. Maybe you see other people and you say, well, 
they haven't worked nearly as hard. Boy, if, if people knew they've just kind of gotten by, they've cheated their way to the top or whatever. What I deserve what they have, though we'd never admit it. Jealousy sometimes seeps in. And the fourth one is this, which is anger. And in some way, I think that pride and greed and jealousy maybe lead to anger. Because I'm upset by what I don't have or what I feel like I deserve or by the fact that now I have to get more or I'm jealous of what someone else has. And bitterness, of course, is a result of anger and hatred and unforgiveness and all the like. Those are some basic signs of money love. I challenge you this morning, look deep inside your heart. Because these things will not necessarily be found on the outside. They'll be found on the inside. What's in your heart? Pride? Greed? Jealousy? Anger? Be honest with yourself this morning. Why why in the world would somebody live that way? You may say, well, I know somebody who's proud. Or they're just greedy. They're stingy. They always want more. Or they're jealous of what everybody else has. Or they're just angry all the time because they don't have what they think they deserve. And God hasn't been good to them or whatever. Why would somebody be like that? Let me give you the causes of money love that I believe are just principles found in the Scripture as a whole. One is living for now. Living for now. The Bible calls this very short-sighted because it says you have no idea how short your life is. It compares life to a vapor that appears for a while and is gone real quickly. It says life is like the grass that that comes up one day and the next day is cut down and thrown into the fire. It says that we have 70, maybe 80 years, that life is just brief. Some of us have been face-to-face with that over the last few weeks, how brief life really is. And so the living for now, the Bible says, is very short-sighted, but many view this life, this life that we see now, as the end with no thought of what comes later on. And it's not just people that are, that are out there somewhere. It's us. Because many Christians, though we'd never admit it, say, yes, I believe in eternal life that I'll receive one day from Jesus, but our only focus is right here and now. And it's evidenced in our lives. The next one is an improper view of money. An improper view of money is another cause for that money love. You go back to the example of the hammer. If I view it as anything other than a tool, then I'm viewing it incorrectly. Nobody would say, well, there's, there's anything but a tool found in this hammer. The truth is, money is just like that. It is simply a tool. It is neither good nor evil. There's nothing wrong with having a lot. There's nothing wrong with having a little. The Bible makes that very clear. Money is neither good nor evil. But when you have an improper view of it, when you believe that it determines your worth, which, by the way, is found only in being loved by Jesus Christ, not in how much or how little you may have, we get it out of view just a a little bit. Money is to be respected, but never loved, never served. An improper view of money leads to fear in those other things than on that list, including pride, greed, jealousy, and anger. A third cause is misguided life goals. Misguided life goals. If I were to ask you, sit down and for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I want you to plan out your life. Set some goals. Those of you that are are in college, that's probably been something you've been forced to do. Either 
on paper or just in your mind. You're just setting goals. What, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? I had four different majors in college. I couldn't figure it out. I settled on history. Sort of because I had already taken enough classes toward that that it made sense by the time I was a sophomore. Well, you know, I don't want to spend another three years here, so might as well go ahead and do that. You're setting goals. You're trying to figure things out. But all too often our goals are only about our jobs, our career paths, our money, our stuff, our retirement, our vacations, our achievements. And rarely are our goals about the kind of person that we're going to become. The intangible things in life. And that's an easy trap to fall into because it's hard to go against the pattern of this world and even of the church. You realize that most often when I talk to other people and they may ask me, hey, how are things going at your church? Where are you all headed? You know the basis of their question is a couple of things. How many people do you have? And how are you going to get more? And let me tell you, I hope that we fill this place up each and every week because people want to hear the Word of God. That's why I hope we fill it up. I hope we we send people out whose lives are changed, but it will never, never be the foundational goal of my ministry in this church and the ministry of this church to simply fill up the pews. We are interested most in life change. And if that means there are 15 people, 5 people, 15,000 people, I have no preference whatsoever because... It is not just about setting goals to get a certain number of people in. We are trying to set intangible goals, life change, mind change, transformation that starts from the inside out. It is in the church. Let me tell you, if you're going to be a person, if you're going to be a leader who says, I'm not going to follow the pattern of the world, my goals are going to be set for the intangible, you will go alone. You will go alone. Because nobody... Nobody that you'll come into contact with will say, oh, well, that's great. You just want to be the right kind of person. But really, what are your goals, they'll ask you. Really, what do you hope to accomplish? I pray that in your life, your goal is to be the most godly person that your family will ever know. I remember giving a speech in a public speaking class my freshman year at Murray State. And I wonder sometimes how I've strayed from this one particular goal that I've said, even before I met Nancy, even before we were engaged and later married and had children and all of that. My goal was this, and I led with this in that class. It was a speech on goals. My number one goal was to be the most godly man my wife and children will ever know. And I have to confess to you, there have been times when I've strayed from that particular goal. But let me challenge you and challenge me to return to those types of goals in your life as an individual in the life of this church, that we are set on being the most godly people that we can possibly be and reaching people not for the sake of touting our numbers, not for the sake of making more money and so on, but for the sake of leading people to Jesus Christ. And that and that alone, I pray, is the direction of our church and of your life as an individual. Improper or misguided life goals will definitely lead you toward money love. The results of money love, look at verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then a great verse, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Some of us just need to ponder that particular verse this week. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with ease. 
But those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The results of money love, one is a more complicated life. A more complicated life. Verses 6 through 8 highlight that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Because if we brought nothing into the world, we're taking nothing out. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. It doesn't make sense. All the stuff you have one day is going to wind up in a yard sale. And people are going to bargain for it. You think it's so valuable, it'll sell for a dime. Why? Because they put a quarter on it and that was too much and they talked them down. That's just the way that it is. Never will you take it with you. And yet, the appreciation for those simple things in life that we realize just leave things uncomplicated is lost on us quite often. And we're taught to add more and more to multitask, to be busy. But that's where true production and worth is found. And it causes us to miss or to avoid the things that just bring the simple pleasures in life. The old statement that the best things in life are free emanates from biblical wisdom. So I ask you, how complicated is your life? And if you want more complication, just fall in love with money. Let me tell you, if you, you say, my life is just complicated and out of control, I, you want to make it more complicated, if that's your goal, then just fall in love with money and pursue it even more. So how complicated is it? Are you, are you ever all there, dads, when you're with your children, when you're with your wife, your friends, are you truly all there? Or are you constantly answering email on your BlackBerry or iPhone? Are you constantly having to return a phone call and take care of business? And you know what? Yeah, I'm there, but I'm not really there because I'm thinking about something else. How often are you all there? If you're not all there, your life is pretty complicated. Are you always on? The worldly thinking has brought us to the place where our lives are pretty complicated. Even though technology promises to simplify things, we find ourselves with more complicated lives than ever. Never content with what we've accomplished or what we have. You want to be on that sure path to destruction and disappointment? Well, then just complicate your life because those are the results. Another result is the temptations, evil desires, and sin that verses 9 and 10 talk about. If you've ever struggled with money love, you know that it will make you contemplate things you never thought of before. You never thought of bending the rules before, but I tell you what, times are tight. Mm, I'm not sure. But you never imagined yourself of being that overly oppressive boss or friend or, or employee. But money love makes you do that. It affects your conscience and drives you to highs and lows that really aren't healthy. It turns you into an angry, overbearing person, a boss, a spouse, a parent, an employee that is tied up in knots and leads you to sin. A third one is this, wandering from God, wandering from God. Verse 10 talks about that, that those who, who love money and by craving that money have wandered away from the faith and trust in your own efforts. You come face to face with what Jesus said in Matthew 6, that you cannot serve two masters. No one can serve both God and money. Why? Because you'll either love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both of those. And so I challenge you, what controls you? What drives you? 
What controls your emotions, your actions? If it's the love of money, you'll wonder from God. And then you see the last one there, the results. Discontent, disappointment, and destruction. Underline each one of those words on your bulletin. I left them all blank because I think they're all important. I figured it'd take you too long to write them all down. And you get frustrated and you'd stop. So just underline all three of those. Verses 9 through 10 talk about the fact that you'll never have enough. That it's uncertain. That it leads you away from the Lord to temporal and to eternal destruction. There's some fellows who lived in the 20th century, and they put it this way, John D. Rockefeller, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, the first multimillionaire in America, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. You say, well, if I only had more, then I, then life would be less complicated. Then, I, let me tell you, things would just work out. When Lisa Arcan won $1 million in the lottery, she thought it was a dream come true. You ever, you ever dreamed about winning the lottery? I, you know, of course, none of you go crazy, but I understand that. But, but you dreamed of it. She bought a new home and new furnishings, took a couple of vacations, enrolled her son in a private school and opened a restaurant. Then, she says, the reality set in. She's a single mom, and she said this, winning the lottery is not all it's cracked up to be. Actually, it's been very depressing. Now, that doesn't even make sense, does it? It has been less than four years since she won the lottery on a scratch-off ticket, and she is closing her dream business, the restaurant that she opened with her winnings. She says she used all her savings to open up the business. Sadly enough, many lottery winners find themselves broke, in debt and even filing bankruptcy after the money is gone. There's a financial planner who says this, a lot of people who win are financially okay when they win. You hope they become really financially secure after they win, but many are in a worse position after winning because of financial commitments. They say for many people who come into wealth suddenly, whether they win the lottery or receive an insurance settlement, settlement or an unexpected inheritance, if they have not acquired, this is it, they have not acquired good money skills prior to this windfall, often they struggle and make poor choices. William Post, who won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, had a brother who tried to have him killed for the inheritance. Post lost and spent all his winnings. He was living off Social Security when he died. Two years after winning a $31 million Texas lottery in 1997, Billy Bob Harold Jr. committed suicide. He bought cars, real estate, gave money to his family, church, and friends after his death. It was not clear whether there was money left for estate taxes. The stories go on and on. You think, if I just had more, if only then I would be okay. And the stories prove out that unless you have refused and run from the love of money early on, when you maybe have more, it will consume you and destroy you. In the New Living Translation, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 to 15 say this, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch, perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, 
whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Here's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Randy Alcorn, in a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity that I'd encourage you to pick up and take a look at, there's some copies in the back as you leave, says it this way about those verses, the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the more people, including the government, come after it. The more some of you have found that out. The more you have, the more you realize it doesn't meet your real needs. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. That path of money love leads to discontent, to disappointment, and to destruction. Money is a tool, so don't fall in love with it. How do you turn from money love? Let's look at these and we'll close. Verse 11 says this, Now you, man of God, run from these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of the life that is real. Let me give you some things. You say, you know what, I don't want to be bound up in that. You look at what is underlined in that previous section. I don't want that life. I don't want to be complicated. I don't want a bunch of sin. I don't want to wander from God. I don't want to wind up discontented, disappointed, and destroyed. I don't want all of those things, so how can I turn from it? The first is this, and we're taking it directly from the Scripture, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Paul lays it out. He says, Timothy, look, all that's going to be a temptation for you, but run from it and pursue these things instead. None of those things, by the way, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, is something you can hold in your hands. It's nothing tangible. It's nothing material but those are the right kind of life goals. And that comes only from doing basic things well, from spending time with the Lord each day, reading the Scripture, from praying, from listening to Him. So maybe this week you'd say, you know what, I'm going to do something toward those goals. I'm going to pursue the immaterial this week and be the person God wants me to be. Second is this, cultivate humility. He says, don't be arrogant. Teach the rich. Teach those who have... Their needs met in this world not to be arrogant, but to cultivate humility. Humility is simply thinking accurately of yourself or thinking of yourself less. Maybe looking to the needs of someone else first and their desires. It also involves grateful living and a recognition that I am the manager, not the owner. Trust God. The third one it says don't place your hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. God owns it all. It all comes from Him. He is good, wanting to bless you, wanting to give you peace and contentment and satisfaction, wanting you to use the tool of money in the right way. But it's got to be done His way to receive those blessings. 
And it's not just about trusting God to take care of you. It's about trusting God enough to do life and money His way. Go overboard in doing good. Go overboard in doing good. You want to break yourself from the love of money? Do all that you can as good. Just wear yourself out doing good. Now, live with balance and understand that. But, but at the same time, if you're going to go overboard with anything, the Bible says, instruct them to be generous in good works. Just go overboard in doing good. Get involved with something that's close to the heart of God. The poor, the needy, those without a voice. We talked about those children. 50 million abortions since 1973. Don't ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the moment to do something good for someone. Live generously. Which means give all you can. You'll never outgive God. I want you to know that. The more that you give toward the things that He is involved with, I believe the more blessing you'll find on your life full of peace and contentment. For some of you, today at lunch, you say, you know what? Let's just determine what it is that we can live on. And let's figure out how to give the rest of it away. Maybe there's a challenge for somebody here today. You know what? I'm going to break myself from the love of money and from trusting my stuff, and I'm just going to give all that I can. Use money as a tool to build for eternity. Use money as a tool to build for eternity. Paul says, take hold of the life that is real. He's talking about the reality of eternal life, to invest in God's work, not just a good cause, but an eternal cause, to use what you have to bring others to the Lord. Money is a tool. Don't fall in love with it, but use it to build for eternity. Some of us are doing pretty well here on earth. Some of us have all of our needs met, and we've got everything taken care of, and we've got all of our goals lined out, and and we're going after those things that may bring achievement or wealth or material security or friends or power or prominence. The truth is that many of those people have no idea about what happens when this life is over. The Bible says that one day, each and every one of us will stand before God. And that access to eternal life comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to receive Him as Savior and as Lord. All you accomplish here on earth. All the stuff you accumulate amounts to nothing when this life is over if you don't know Jesus Christ. Nothing. Luke 9.25 says it this way, What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, all the stuff this world has to offer, financial security and all that goes with it, and yet forfeits or loses his soul? You can't take it with you. It provides you no standing before God, only the grace of God coupled with your faith in Jesus Christ, makes you right before God. That's it. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't earn God's favor. The chief purpose in this life is to prepare for the next. So I ask you, are you prepared? What are you counting on for eternal life? Your accomplishments and achievements? Or are you counting on what the Bible says, and that is receiving the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You can do it today. You may say, well, I, I'm not sure about eternity. I, I don't really know. I've never, never thought about it. You can be sure today. And you can have a life filled with purpose, filled with 
peace, even in the midst of difficult times, all because Jesus will come to live on the inside of you. He'll begin to change you in ways that you've always wanted but never knew how. So maybe today your prayer needs to be, Lord, come into my life. Be for me my Savior and my Lord. I confess my sins to you. I know that I've messed up. And my only hope for eternal life is Jesus Christ. Some of you have nailed that down and you say, you know what, that's, that's, salvation maybe is not an issue for me. I'm confident that I've placed my trust in the Lord. And so I ask you, are you doing life and money then God's way as a result of that? Or have you fallen in love with the tool? Do you love it? Or do you simply use it for what it's meant to be used for? And that's to build for eternity. That sure path to destruction and disappointment begins with loving money. Paul says run from that. And pursue the intangible things in life that will give you the most fulfillment and that will please God. I'd like for you to bow your head and Close your eyes, we'll pray, and then we'll close with a song. Be honest this morning with yourself and with God. Do you know Him? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior, fully recognizing that apart from Him, you'll never receive eternal life? Do you know Him that way? Young people, middle-aged people, older people, do you know Him that way? Or are you counting on something else? Maybe just being good enough. The Bible says there's no chance of that because all all of us, the Bible says, have sinned and we fall way short of God's standard. The only chance we have to be made right with Him is because Jesus went and paid for our sins when He died. God requires a death for sin, the death of a perfect substitute. Jesus is that substitute. So I challenge and encourage you, place your faith in Him today. Maybe you've already done that and you say, you know what, I just need to repent of this way that I've loved money and put my hope in that. and Nobody would ever know it and I, I don't want anybody to find out, but you know what, that's been my pattern and I've had a lot or I've had a little or I've had an in-between, but I realize that I've loved it counted on it, and I've not done it God's way. Don't leave here unchanged today. Give your life and every part of it to Jesus Christ. He'll never let you down. The Bible says He'll be closer to you than any friend or brother you've ever had. Lord Jesus, thank You for the truth that's found in Your Word. I pray You turn us today from the path that leads to destruction and disappointment. Turn us away from the love of the stuff of this earth and turn us toward an eternal perspective. To live in such a way that whatever blessings you give us, Lord, whether we have a lot, whether we have a little or in between, that all that we have we'd recognize as a gift from you and we'd use it as best we can with godly wisdom and for an eternal purpose. Help us, Lord, to place our trust only in you and to use money as a tool to build for eternity. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives. Change us today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.